everyone, and welcome to another edition of Criminal Discourse Podcast. I'm Trish. And I'm Maddie. And we're here with you again today with another new episode. But before we get started, we want to get some shout outs and some thank yous. We want to thank our listeners in Alaska, specifically our listeners in Anchorage, Fairbanks, and Eagle River. Maddie, did you know that in Alaska, there is one bear for every 21 people? That's a lot of bears. It is a lot of bears. bears. (laughs) Because I think the state population is a little under 800,000 from the last census, but that's a lot of bears. Well, and in Pennsylvania, I mean, we have a bear population. Now, I don't know what the comparison is to the number of people. We don't have that many bears. No, but we already have like bears in the yard and bears in the street and bears rocking around. So I can only imagine. Right. You get a bear and you get a bear. Everybody gets a bear in Alaska. (laughs) Okay. And we want to thank, I put out my clues for your episode on the AM Shinriko cult that had the sarin gas attack in the Japanese sub ways. And Lori H. once again was (laughs) right on it. (laughs) Do we think maybe Lori H. should have her own podcast? Like, (laughs) I feel like every single time. We probably should have Lori H. on because she seems very knowledgeable. (laughs) She's on it. I put it out and I know within an hour, she will have the answer there. She's who you want on your true crime trivia team. So if you would like to reach out to us to see the photos that Trish is talking about, we post those on our Facebook. It's Criminal Discourse Podcast. We also have a website, criminaldiscoursepodcast.com, where we have all of our show notes, resources, and also a contact page where you can reach out to us. And then we have our Instagram, criminaldispod. Ooh, your bird's angry in the background. You know, we have an extra listener here today. If you hear the angry bird in the background, that's Maddie's. It's the morning and he uh, he doesn't like, I don't know, he, he likes to be the center of attention all the time, as does every other living thing in my house, which makes it complicated because there's a lot of them. <laughs> yes. You're running your own wild animal in reptilian land bark and out of yes. your home. All right. This week's episode's location is Las Vegas, Nevada. You've been there, haven't you? Yeah, we went we went to Vegas for five days. I think we stepped in a casino once. Like we spent most of our time driving around, like driving to California, driving around in the desert, all that. So I don't really know why we went to Vegas, but it was fun. <laughs> I think if you're out there, you have to go to Vegas. Yes. Las Vegas, Nevada is known for being the 28th most populated state in the United States. It is the halfway point between Salt Lake City, Utah and Los Angeles, California. That is why the Church of Jesus Christ of the Latter-day Saints had sent members there to establish a fort in 1855, but they banded it a few years later. So not to be just an abandoned town out in the desert, Las Vegas was founded in 1905, and in 1931, Nevada legalized casino gambling, and it also reduced the residency requirement for couples who want to get a divorce. So not only can you get quickie marriages in Las Vegas, as they did establish the first wedding chapel in 1942. They don't require any blood work or waiting periods, but you can also get a quickie divorce. That's beautiful. Isn't it? (laughs) You can get married and divorced all within a rapid period of time. All over the weekend bachelorette trip. You got it taken care of. (laughs) Sadly, I'm sure that's happened. So, (laughs) So on July 6, 1996, Bruce Charles Weinstein, he was an illegal bookmaker. He always followed a routine. And that routine was to call his mother, Sylvia White. And at 6 p.m., Las Vegas time. And it didn't matter where he was, what he was doing. He always called his mom. 
So when Sylvia failed to hear from Bruce by 8 a.m. the next morning on July 6, she called Bruce's home and his live-in girlfriend, Amy Deshaunt, answered the phone. And she had told her Bruce had gone out the night before around 11 o'clock and had yet to return. Now, Sylvia was kind of like, okay, that doesn't sound right. So Amy went on and told her that Bruce had told Amy that if he's not back before they were to leave on vacation, and that was later that week, she was to go ahead and leave without him and he would catch up to her. So again, Sylvia's kind of like, mm, yeah, I'm thinking my son's never going to go out that late because he's usually asleep by then. She's like mom's instinct. She's like, I'm, I'm going over to his house. So when she arrives, she finds Amy cleaning the white carpet on the stairway. Now that didn't really surprise her as Amy owned her own carpet cleaning business. But what did surprise her was finding Bruce's wallet his cell phone, and his favorite pair of sandals that she found at the bottom of the stairs. Now, Bruce's cell phone is his lifeline and something he would never be without because, hello, he's an illegal bookmaker. He needs to have access to his phone to conduct his business. Makes sense. So the next day, after still not hearing from Bruce, leaving him messages, she contacted the Las Vegas Police Department and filed a missing persons report. So a little bit about Amy Rika Deshaun. Amy had a tragic upbringing as both of her parents had died by the time she turned nine. So she was predominantly raised by an aunt and uncle in Perth, Amboy, New Jersey. So Amy had married her high school sweetheart at the age of 17, and she started her own carpet cleaning business, and she was really quite successful. So although her business was a success, her marriage didn't last. And that seems to have started a history with Amy dating men who had money, with the next one being wealthier than the last. So at the age of 45, after now two failed marriages, Amy decided she wanted a fresh start and warmer weather. So instead of moving to Florida, she moved to Las Vegas, Nevada. Am I thinking warmer weather and deeper pockets? <laughs> like, does that not seem yeah. to be the theme there? <laughs> and she also liked to gamble. So that kind of combined all three. So Amy arrived in Las Vegas in 1992 with the money she had made from her carpet cleaning business, which she sold. So she was able to buy a condo and kind of get herself set up. And she decided like, hey, I had success back in New Jersey with that business. I'm going to start one here. So she did. And she hired two employees to help her with her new business. One was a longtime friend, Claudia McClure, and another man that she had met in the casino. And his name was Wayne Jones, but he went by Bobby. So I'm going to refer to him as Bobby. Doesn't that sound like such a 90s thing? Like meeting someone at a casino? Hey, do you need a job? Like it just seems like that maybe it does still happen. It doesn't seem like something that happens as much now. It did then. So Bobby got a job in the carpet cleaning business. So Amy's business was doing well. And she even landed two big contracts, one with Scenic Airlines and the other with the MGM Grand. Now, when I went to Las Vegas, and this was, oh my gosh, probably 15 years ago, we stayed at the MGM Grand. There's a lot of carping. <laughs> It's gorgeous. It's a gorgeous hotel. They have a nice little lazy river in the back, and it's very nice. So in the fall of 1995, while at a Texas Hold'em poker table at the Mirage Casino, she met Bruce Weinstein. Now, Bruce is described as one that kind of stands out in the crowd. He was 46 at the time, and he weighed about 300 pounds, and he wore his hair in a ponytail. So Bruce described himself to her as a professional gambler, but he also was involved in the family business for the past 20 years, and that was being a bookmaker. Now, a bookmaker, for those that don't know, is someone who takes money on events, mostly sporting events, but you can bet on anything out in Vegas. And the bookmaker pays on those bets on the agreed upon odds if the client wins. 
So Bruce and Amy's relationship seemed to start it off as a professional one, as Bruce had hired Amy's cleaning service for some jobs he had. I think he was into real estate also, so I think he had some properties. But their relationship quickly turned to a romantic one, and soon Amy moved into Bruce's home that he had recently purchased. And this was a Spanish-style mini-mansion. So I'm thinking it's pretty big. It's a (laughs) mini-mansion. We should get like a chart, a comparison chart. This is a home, mini mansion, mansion, just so that we know. Right. It's the hybrid between the regular home and the mansion. So Bruce lavished Amy with gifts, including diamond necklaces and a turquoise Chevy Camaro. And this was just weeks after they started dating. That car probably stood out. Turquoise? (laughs) Yes. Although it was Vegas. I don't know how much. It's hard to stand out in Vegas. It is the West, so turquoise jewelry. So I know it fits in, but I was like, wow, that car probably really stands out. So Amy seemed to make Bruce very happy. And even his family was happy with their relationship as Amy had helped Bruce lose some weight. Bruce was a diabetic. So when he met, like I said, he was 300 pounds and Amy eventually got him down to around 260. Pretty good. So the family was really happy. They thought they had a very loving relationship. So after Sylvia contacts, they police department to make a missing persons report, the family really isn't satisfied with the progress being made. So being frustrated at the slow pace by the police, they hired a private detective on July 7th. His name was Michael Wasaki. So Wasaki immediately focused on the last person to see or speak to Bruce, and that was Amy Deshaun. So he interviewed Amy, and once again, she relayed the same story that she had told Bruce's mother about him leaving around 11 p.m. on July 5th. Now, on July 11th, Waisaki decided to speak to Amy once again. And this time she told him, well, I'm planning on leaving the country. And I'm not sure why she would share this with him or not, but she was looking into non-extradition countries to go to. Yeah, that's a red flag right there. Red flag, red flag. (laughs) It's okay to go out of country. You probably don't want to tell somebody you're looking into non-extradition countries. So the next day, when she spoke to Waisaki, once again, she gave him a now a new version of events from that night. She claimed that on the night of July 5th, four masked men broke into their home and separated them, taking Bruce upstairs to the bedroom and moving her into the dining room. The three of the men had beat Bruce up and then shot him, taking his body with them. Now the intruders told Amy to keep her mouth shut and clean up the crime scene. Thank God she was a carpet cleaner. And if anybody asked about Bruce, she was to tell them he had just gone out. Their final message was that they would be watching her. And if she talked to anybody, they would kill her. So Waisaki was able to find blood and actually a bullet hole on the flip side of Bruce's mattress. And he immediately notified his findings to police. So the next day, Amy would repeat this new version of events, but this time it was to the police in a taped interview. And she added another little tidbit to her story. She said that she had received a call from one of the intruders several days after Bruce's murder, reminding her that they were watching her and they would kill her and Bruce's daughter from his first marriage if she told anyone. Now, what surprised police in this interview with Amy is that she brought notes with her that she referred to when telling her version to the police of that night. And the cops are just kind of looking at her like she has notes. Yeah, the, what you don't bring your notes. Oh, oh, this is the part. This is the part where the intruders came in. 
(laughs) Yes. So Amy claimed, though, that she always kept notes. It was something she always did with her business just to keep everything straight. So to her, bringing these notes in was just her way to make sure she covered everything. Now, Amy also claimed to the police that the four intruders that broke in had New Yorkese accents. So I'm thinking it's something like, how you doing, you know, kind of thing. But she's from Jersey. Couldn't she be more specific than that? (laughs) I would think so. Like, oh, that's Brooklyn. That's Queen. I don't know. I don't know. Not to offend anybody in New York State that has a New Yorkese accent. (laughs) We have Pennsylvania, so. Yeah, you're much better off with your New Yorkese. That is true. So Amy implied to the police that because Bruce was involved with illegal bookmaking, that his death was tied to organized crime, i.e. the mob. So police immediately got search warrants and began an exhaustive search of Bruce's home. And then they also looked at Amy's car, Bruce's car, and the truck Amy used for her carpet cleaning business. So they also began to look into Amy's relationship, specifically with her employee, Bobby Jones. Now, upon searching Bruce's home for blood evidence, they sprayed luminol everywhere. And they were able to find a pretty distinct trail of blood starting in the master bedroom, going down the stairs and into the foyer area of the home. So don't call her carpet cleaning business if it's a blood related (laughs) stain because apparently she can't get it out. Well, you couldn't see it with the naked eye. They had to spray it with luminol. I was thinking she did a pretty good job. It was white carpet. I don't know. I didn't see any crime scene photos. Cause I could totally be wrong. It could be a big trail of blood. But my understanding is they found it by spraying the luminol and that, you know, lit it up. The police were unable to locate a murder weapon or any shell casings. And they didn't find any blood stains or carpet fibers in any of the vehicles. Now, during the investigation, police discovered that Amy had purchased a safety deposit box at a local hotel. So they seized that deposit box. And in that, they found $35,000 in cash, some sport book chips, and a bag of jewelry. Now, at this point, although Amy was a suspect in Bruce's disappearance and most likely involved with his murder, they didn't have enough to charge her. So wait, didn't they find the whole bullet hole mattress going on in the bedroom, too, that the private investigator talked about? I I believe so. But again, they weren't able to really tie that to Amy. There was no DNA. There's no video there. I mean, they felt that, yes, she most likely had a hand in this murder, but her story also could be four men broke in and did this to Bruce. Let's remember, Bruce was 260 pounds. Amy Deshaun, by looking at her photos, was not a big woman. You know, so in their mind, that's why they looked, I think, into Bobby Jones, because somebody would have had to help her move Bruce's body because he was so heavy. But again, they didn't have enough to tie her to the crime to formally charge her. So on August 11th, 1996, a little over two months later, in Mesquite, Nevada, and this is a town located approximately an hour, 15 minutes northeast of Las Vegas, near the border of Arizona, Bruce's body was discovered by some hikers. Now, I read another article that also said they were rabbit hunters. So hikers slash rabbit hunters discovered his grave that had been covered in stones. So from his body, police were able to recover a 38 caliber bullet. This was found inside his body. And of course, that was determined to be the cause of death. Now, unfortunately, ballistic tests could not be run on it because of its condition. So a year later, a 38 caliber gun would be found in the desert outside of Las Vegas. And this gun was traced to Matthew Hunt. Now, Matthew Hunt happened to be a friend of Bobby Jones's son. Now, the gun that they recovered was too rusty due to being out in the elements, so they were unable to positively match it to Bruce's murder, but it was the same make and caliber 
of what was used to kill Bruce. So police went to arrest Amy, but when they went to get her, she was gone. Apparently, she left after she found Bruce's hiding place in the closet wall. He apparently stashed money there, and she would end up taking about $135,000 with her. So the police issued a fugitive arrest warrant for her. Now, Amy wasn't on the run long, but she did make it all the way to Maryland, where in the fall of 1996, she would be pulled over for speeding. So when police asked for Amy's ID, she decided instead to flash the cop her vagina, seemingly offering him something else in lieu of her ID to try to get out of that situation. Now, every article I read about this incident, they referred to it as her groin area. So here on Criminal Discourse, we're going to call parts parts. So she flashed to her vagina at the cop. Now, the cop did not take Amy up on her offer and arrested her. So I'm going to insert a Criminal Discourse life tip in here. And that would be, when you are on the run, do not speed or flash your genitalia to the cop. (laughs) At a police officer. Right, at a police officer. That's just a smart move right there. It didn't help Amy out. He didn't take her up on her offer. So the police searched her vehicle and they found $101,000 thrown about the car along with a passport and wigs. And I'm thinking, wow, she really flew through a lot of money, like $34,000. That's exactly what I was thinking. How many wigs did she buy? I don't know. So Amy was extradited back to Nevada after spending two months in the Maryland jail. But because she had not been formally charged with Bruce's murder, her bail was just set at $5,000. So she paid that and then promptly took off again. So Amy was able to remain off of the police's radar for more than a year. But that would end on July 3rd, 1998, when Amy's story was featured on an episode of America's Most Wanted. Phone lines lit up and police got a tip that Amy had been seen at the Sunnier Palms Nudist Park and Campground near Fort Pierce, Florida. Now, Sunnier Palms is a clothing optional community established in 1992, and it still operates today because I looked at their website. So it's there. Next vacation spot? Well, it is clothing up. No, no. It looks very nice. It just looks like a nice little campground. They have a pool. I did see that. They have a nice pool. And they had those chairs, those lounge chairs with like the straps that go across. So I was thinking, oh. that's not a good idea. No, I didn't think so either. If If you're deciding that day to go clothing off, that probably would not be a good thing to lay on. So when police arrived at Sunnier Palms, they had just missed Amy, who had been living under the name Sandy Wade, and they'd only missed her by a few hours. But they were able to pick up her trail, and they would find her in Port St. Lucia at a friend's house a few days later on January 28, 1998. So police discovered that while Amy had been on the run, she had been working as like a bar waitress or a bartender at various bars, kind of keeping off the radar. So Amy once again was returned to Las Vegas, but this time she was held without bail. So I guess they learned and charged with murder with a deadly weapon. And I believe Bobby Jones was also charged as an accessory to the murder. Now, Amy would be the 500th fugitive captured from America's Most Wanted. Woohoo, go America's Most Wanted. I know, isn't that great? I said Bobby Jones was also caught up in this. So while Amy was avoiding authorities, Bobby, who was 58, had been charged as an accessory for helping Amy move Bruce's body from his home and then transporting him and eventually burying him in Mesquite, Nevada. Now, Bobby had also fled Las Vegas after the murder, but he was tracked down pretty quickly about a month later in New Mexico. I don't think he flashed his genitalia. See, my go-to was always, if you get pulled over, you just cry. Yes. And not flash your genitalia. Like, 
So on October of 1998, Amy's trial began, and prosecutors painted a picture of a greedy woman who was only in a relationship with Bruce because she wanted his money. And when Bruce threatened to end their relationship, Amy, who didn't want to give up her lavish lifestyle of living in the mini-mansion, murdered him. And of course, Bobby Jones was Amy's co-defendant because he helped to clean up the crime scene. Amy maintained her innocence, sticking with the story that she had told the PI and the police about the masked intruders and that Bruce was murdered due to his illegal bookmaking. Now, a neighbor of Bruce's testified at trial that on the night of July 5th, he heard three popping sounds. At the time, he took that to be leftover fireworks. I believe the prosecutor wants you to believe that these actually were gunshots. So during the trial, Al Levitt, a former detective, testified for the state that Amy's mob story was, quote, fairy tale, unquote. And this was made over defense's objections because the defense's theory was that, no, these were four masked intruders. This wasn't made up where you have a detective on the stand saying, yeah, it's a it's just an all made up fairy tale. So the prosecution would reiterate this fairy tale statement in their closing arguments. The jury deliberated for two days before they would come back with a verdict of guilty. And Amy was sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. Bobby Jones received a five-year sentence for his involvement. I'm kind of surprised. I'm just, it, it doesn't seem like a whole lot of evidence for life without parole. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I just feel like there's a lot of reasonable doubt there. I don't know if I were on that jury. Like, I'm not surprised that it took them two whole days to deliberate. I, I'm kind of surprised they came back with a guilty verdict, to be honest, just based on the evidence. I can see the guilty verdict. Like you, I'm like, without parole? Like, ugh. I could see like 20, 25, you know, 20 years to life, you know, mm-hmm. something like that. But the life without parole, I was like, whoa. So the reason I mentioned the fairy tale comment is that this statement would come back to bite the prosecution in 2000, when the Nevada State Supreme Court would vacate Amy's verdict, saying that the fairy tale comment unfairly influenced the jury and ultimately the verdict that they passed. So prosecutors decided that instead of going to trial again, they would offer Amy a deal. And if she would plead to second degree murder, she would receive a sentence of 10 to 25 years with credit for time served. So at this point, this she was already three and a half years into her sentence. So she accepted the deal on September 20th, 2001. And in July 2010, Amy Deshant, at the age of 69, was released from prison. Her whereabouts are unknown. Did they say what? Like, what about the fairy tale comment? This is the way I, I understood it. They felt that because the defense's theory was that these four masked intruders came in, separated them, killed Bruce, threatened to kill her if she didn't clean up the crime scene. That was their defense. So when a cop came in and basically said, well, I don't think it's wrong for a witness to say, well, we didn't believe her. There was no evidence of this. Nothing pointed to four masked intruders. He made this like, well, it's just a lie. It's a fairy tale. And when the prosecution reiterated that statement, they felt, again, that the jury, it unfairly influenced them. Like, oh, you have a cop and a prosecutor saying it's an all made up lie, giving no credence to the defense's theory okay. and didn't give her a fair trial. That's the way I take it. I could be wrong. If there's any lawyers listening, let me know. But that's the way I took it. So Amy only ended up serving like 10 years and she got out. So the story isn't quite over because in 2002, so we're going back a little ways. This was like the year after Amy took the plea deal. Sylvia White, who was 76 at this time, she's Bruce's mother, and her grandson, Mark Weinstein, who was 22, and two others were arrested and charged on felony bookmaking, operating a sports book without a 
license and racketeering. So apparently gaming board control agents had raided this suburban home in this nice little neighborhood and found a bank of telephones, computers, betting slips, and gaming boards. So gaming officials estimated that this operation had several thousand dollars in wagers on a weekly basis. They got busted. Oh, I kind of feel bad for Sylvia. Like, <laughs> I mean, they're criminals, but still. <laughs> that was the family business, though. I think that's something Bruce took over from his father. And then I guess when Bruce died, Sylvia brought it back around for her grandsons. So yeah, they. I but I couldn't find anything that said what they got. Like, was there ever a trial? I couldn't find, did they just receive a fine? Racketeering charges, you can get some time for that. But doesn't it depend on the amounts too? Like racketeering charges? True, but they had several thousand dollars in wages each week. So they made a lot of money at their bookmaking. It was pretty substantial. Couldn't find anything that said what happened to them. So if anybody knows, let us know. So yeah, that is the story of Amy Deschant. It made the news, I think, because it was more for the fact that she hid out in a nudist colony. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, even just, and it's funny because you always think of like, when you see like murders in Vegas and stuff like that, oh, you got the whole desert to hide all the evidence. And in this case, they found it anyway. Like they found the gun that was separated in the desert and the body. Like, yes. Crazy. And it wasn't that long after it either no hide your bodies better guys come on well i don't know if they how deep they buried him because i think he was covered with stones so that probably stood out yeah. <laughs> you're walking in the desert and be like what's that mound of stones over there that's <laughs> the length of a body that would kind of be a clue that something might be under there so that could be our other life tip when walking and you see a pile of stones pile of stones the length of a body assume there's a body underneath well, thank you, everybody, for taking the time to listen to this episode. Of course, you heard our life tip in the middle of the episode. We'll reiterate it here again. When on the run, do not speed or flash your genitalia to law enforcement. How about we just say, don't ever flash your genitalia to law enforcement. We can make that a blanket one. <laughs> we could, maybe just in general, don't flash your genitalia at any <laughs> There you go. <laughs> Let's widen the scope here. <laughs> right. Keep that stuff private. Unless you go to Sunnier Palms and a clothing optional community or a nudist beach and flash away because everybody's flashing. But otherwise, mm -mm, cover it up. All right. So just some, I guess, favors we could ask from you guys. We so appreciate your listenership. And if you like what you're hearing, if you're enjoying all of these true crime stories we're giving you. If you want to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you're using to listen to us today. And then tell a friend. Word of mouth is really the way that we are getting this podcast out there and upping our listenership. So if you have somebody that you know in your life that enjoys true crime, please let them know that we're out here so we can give them a chance to hear our stories as well. Absolutely. Yes. So as we always end our show, if you see something, say something. You might have that missing piece of the puzzle it takes to solve a crime. And as always, we want you to stay safe. We still need to social distance, wash our hands, wear our masks. So we want to make sure everyone's safe and doing what they can. So please be safe and also be kind. So until next time, guys. Bye. Bye.